You're listening to Autism Thinks, hosted by the New Jersey Autism Center of Excellence. Hello, it's Hannah here. Even though you might be spending more time inside for the most part, I hope you're still learning new things every single day. There's so much the world has to offer and so much to be discovered. Of course, after getting more time to take in the news or watch more Netflix, you're probably thinking, there's nothing new to know, or I've seen it all. But have you ever heard of a physician who's pursuing genomic psychiatry and can rock and roll? Can't take it, least I am Meet the musician behind this musical masterpiece, Dr. Daniel Moreno de Luca, a psychiatrist for children, adolescents, and adults as well as an assistant professor of psychiatry and human behavior at Brown University. I'm Dr. Daniel Moreno de Luca. I'm an attending psychiatrist, a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist at the Varechia Clinic for Autism and Developmental Disabilities at Bradley Hospital and Brown University, where I'm also an assistant professor. Dr. Moreno de Luca is a physician scientist, and in his path towards this career, He has been deeply interested on the impact of genetic variation on conditions in the nervous system and how discoveries in this field can enhance patient care. And my main focus is both doing clinical care and research for the benefit of people on the autism spectrum. So I study the rare genetics of autism and how that can impact their clinical management. Dr. Morena De Luca's music later on in this episode. But first, let's delve into his clinical work and research. Our physician's research has focused on the genetic underpinnings of autism and other neuropsychiatric conditions, specifically on the role of rare genetic variants as risk factors. What are some things you think of when you hear the word genetics? You might think of the code or blueprint that maps out how your hair looks like, or maybe the color of your eyes. But what about your brain? Yes, your brain. Your genetics has a major role in the development and function of your brain and nervous system as a whole. And Dr. Moreno de Luca studies this intersection of genetics and neuroscience, which is called neurogenetics. So neurogenetics is just a fancy term of saying that we're talking about the genetics of the neurological system or the central nervous system, pretty much almost always meaning the brain. Now genetics, I'm I'm glad you asked that question because genetics is a pretty unique concept in the sense that it's not only one thing, although when we hear that word, we tend to think about one thing only. And I actually think of genetics as an umbrella term that encompasses many different things. My specific focus 
is on rare genetics. Uh, these are genetic, genetic changes that are present in less than 1% of the population, meaning that the majority, the vast majority of people in the general population don't have these genetic changes. And when someone does have them, they tend to be associated with either medical or mental health conditions. So that's what I study. And that's why genetic testing is recommended for some conditions like autism spectrum disorders. Rare genetics involves genetic variants that occur at a low frequency in populations. It appears that roughly one in three autistic children have a genetic component to the way their nervous system functions. You might have heard of two diagnostic tests often used for autism spectrum conditions. One of them is chromosomal microarray. So from the name, you know that chromosomal microarray looks at chromosomes. And chromosomes are long DNA molecules with a part or all of your genetic material. They look like tiny X's and you have 23 pairs of them. The chromosomal microarray test checks if there are segments on the chromosome that might be extra pieces or duplicates. The other test is called the fragile X test, which checks if there's a variation in the sequence of a gene called fMR1 in the X chromosome. The fMR1 gene makes proteins for different parts of the body, like our brain. We know as part of many medical professional societies that two specific tests called chromosomal microarray testing and fragile X testing are considered the standard of care for people on the autism spectrum and they should be offered to everyone on the autism spectrum just because of many advantages among them being able to understand what's leading to uh, an autism spectrum diagnosis in a given family or just think about many additional ramifications like how could that impact other medical systems or, or other uh, bodily systems beyond the brain. You know? So that's rare genetics. It sounds, and it is by definition, rare, less than 1% of the population. But the point that I would like to drive home is that when you put together all of these rare genetic causes of autism, they can account for up to 35 or 40% of cases of autism, meaning that about one in every three people on the autism spectrum is going to have a genetic cause for their autism. So that's pretty important, although we're talking about rare. If you think of, of that higher frequency when you pull them all together, it's quite a, a significant number of people uh, on the autism spectrum in, in the US, for example, that are just walking around with these genetic conditions that most of the time are undetected and that could lead to improved uh, clinical management for those who, who need that. Now, all of that is, comes under the, the term rare genetics. Another branch of genetics is something that you might see on the shelves of your local pharmacy store. Companies like 23andMe provide genetic testing services for more common variants or common genetics. Then there's also something called common genetics, which is pretty much what you see when you go to Target or Walmart and you see a 23andMe kit. Those are those things where you can just spit or you get a vocal swab and then they look at common genetic changes. So we said rare are present in less than 1% of the population. 
common are, of course, much more frequent than that. And those are the genetic changes that are going to determine many of the characteristics that are different in the general population, like height, uh, eye color, or things like that. Now, each of those common genetic changes is going to have a tiny, tiny impact on the clinical feature that we're looking at. It could be height. We need hundreds, if not thousands of individual little common genetic changes to actually modulate height. And they, because of that, they're not really as associated with uh, major conditions like uh, autism spectrum disorder. Now there's one exception when you pull together many common genetic changes in high risk genes, you can come up with something called a polygenic risk score. And there's evidence arising to support the association of that with not only autism, but many other mental health and physical conditions. But overall, common genetics is going to determine the variability in common traits like height. The other branches of genetics he mentions are epigenetics, which is a really cool field where environments can actually drive some of your genes to be activated or inactivated, and the field pharmacogenetics, which informs how your genes respond to certain medicines or drugs. Epigenetics, which just looks at the way that the genomes that we have are differentially expressed. So this is not looking at genetic changes, but at mechanisms to either silence or boost the expression of any given gene. And that's going to be very different from the two categories that we spoke about. And lastly, in, in medicine, there's this other category called pharmacogenetics, which just looks at a selected number of genes that are going to determine how a medication is broken down by your bodies, or is going to look at the specific targets for any given medication in our bodies and try to estimate either an adequate dose or the probability of developing a side effect based on that genetic information. Now that one is not as clear cut an indication for testing as it is for rare genetics in autism, for example, but there's evidence that's growing and supporting this type of genetics. So just to recap, there's quite a few things that go under that genetics umbrella. Rare genetics, common genetics, epigenetics, and pharmacogenetics. And my field of study is rare genetics of the brain. So neurogenetics. Along with bridging both the fields of neuroscience and genetics, Dr. Moreno de Luca also forges a path towards precision medicine and psychiatry. If you've heard of precision medicine before, but you're not really sure what it's all about, fear not. An example of precision medicine can be found on your face or maybe a friend's face. Think about the glasses you wear over your eyes. And the other example that I really, really like about precision medicine is uh, this one right here. So you might not be able to see this because you're listening to us, but glasses, eyeglasses. Uh, so we could think about this being the perfect example of precision medicine. Like we can call something myopia or, or, or hypermetropia, or so nearsightedness or firesightedness. And if we were to say that, the cure for nearsightedness is glasses, and we just have one pair of glasses that we give to everyone. 
no one would see anything pretty much. You need to know specifically what type of formula you need in your glasses, what's the specific curvature, and that's the type of resolution that I dream we will achieve in psychiatry. So let's find those glasses in, in psychiatry. Let's adapt the treatment to your specific situation, knowing that we'll end up calling everything autism, and, and that's okay. Like If we still uh, use that uh, diagnosis uh, to bring together this cluster of symptoms uh, and to help people who, who meet that criteria, I'm okay with that. But let's just go beyond the diagnosis and try to figure out how we can best intervene and help for those people who need our help. He incorporates this notion of precision medicine into psychiatry, studying aspects like behavior and cognition through the lens of genetics. I'm very interested in precision medicine and my approach to that is mostly through genetics. The idea behind precision medicine is that you would be able to individualize treatment based on the specific characteristics of the person that's in front of you. And we, of course, do that all the time as, as physicians. The, the examples of any given medical condition that you hear about on textbooks are never the person that's going to be in front of you. So the person in front of you is always going to have just this additional comorbidity or slightly different weight or age or ancestry and all of that is going to have a big impact. But we have to think about the sort of the prototypic way uh, of conceiving a, a specific medical condition to then adapt our knowledge to that. And precision medicine aims to quantify and to provide additional information to aid us in that path. And what I mean by that, specifically for autism, is that we know, like we were discussing a little bit earlier, that up to 40% of cases of autism are going to have an identifiable genetic explanation for their autism. And we also know that none of those single individual rare explanations are going to account for more than 1% of cases on their own. So bringing together many, many different individually rare explanations, that's what's going to make up that 40%. These rare genetic changes not only have an impact on the brain, but also other medical conditions. There are underlying conditions that can intersect with one another for each individual. For instance, an individual with ASD might also have issues with their heart or kidney function too. Let's say we were seeing a, a person with autism in our clinic, a patient because they're in our clinic, we'll call them patients, uh, who presented because of autism and who was having these really intense behavioral outbursts. We know that there are some medications that are approved by the FDA to treat this irritability and these behavioral outbursts. But then some of those medications may actually impact your, your heart function. So we know that they can make your heart beat ever so slightly slower. We call that technically lengthening the QTC interval, which is one of the tracings of an, echo, of an electrocardiogram, which for the most part is not something that you need to be too, too concerned about. But if someone already has an underlying cardiac problem, that becomes a big deal. Now where precision medicine comes in is that this genetic information is going to not only tell you that the autism in that particular patient is stemming from that genetic cause, 
but also that you need to be mindful about the heart for that particular patient because other patients with the same gen rare genetic cause are also going to have heart problems. So then that would prompt you, for example, to do a cardiac workup where you may be able to identify, where, where you will be able to identify a genetic abnormality if that's present in there. And that's going to alter your treatment based on that. So that's just one of the examples. Some of the other ones could be like, there's this rare genetic change in a gene called Shank3, which is very interesting from a synaptic standpoint, but also very interesting, interestingly from a behavioral standpoint, people with mutations in this gene tend to have less expressive verbal language. And that's just one of the parts of the behavioral phenotype. So then if you start thinking about how to best help people in, in the clinic, who have this mutation. Let's say that if you didn't know that they had that, you would push for language and speech therapy of for hours and hours every week. But if you already know that they sort of biologically are going to have a much lower chance of speaking and, and having spoken language, then perhaps you could use that time to bolster assisted communication devices and find a way that builds on their strengths or that adapts to that specific behavioral profile rather than trying to supplement some of the challenging areas. And that can end up being functionally much more meaningful for the person that, that you're treating. And I think that's where the richness and where the cross-pollination comes from. Like the families of people on the autism spectrum and, and people on the autism spectrum themselves are the experts on their own experiences and their strengths and their challenges. And then we have people who are experts in genetics or in any other branches of science. And the, I think the best outcomes would be achieved if we all come to the table as equals, thinking that we all have a lot to contribute and that we have a very special space where we can contribute that. Like I know that I have a lot to contribute in regards to genetics, for example, or my experience as an underrepresented minority. And there are many areas where I know that there are going to be people that are extremely more capable of contributing to. So rather than either researchers dictating the autism families what should be researched or the other way around, like families on the autism spectrum, just telling researchers what needs to happen. I think if it's a one-way um, interchange, that doesn't work that well, but a partnership is extremely rich and that's what I would love to see happen more. Okay, so now back to Dr. Morena de Luca's music. He performs under the stage name Brun, and his song Outer Space 
delves into the beauty of the unique worlds within autism. To him, outer space serves as a thank you to all the people on the autism spectrum who have allowed him to be a part of their world. It focuses on the initial part, on the perspectives of the maybe the general public or of people who are not on the autism spectrum and what they think about people on the autism spectrum, uh, while also focusing on some of the things that people on the autism spectrum find challenging. So we know, for example, that there's these sensory sensitivities or um, issues that are a big deal. People might be very averse to bright lights or light, loud noises, or uh, just have either kind of hearing things really loudly or uh, many type of these uh, sort of slightly different perceptual uh, changes. One of the, the, character, the characteristics of many people on the autism spectrum is also that they like their routines and they like their things as they're at. Uh, and there's a lot of this change happening around them, like the seasons change, and I am still the same, is one of, one of the words in, in the first verse. So it's more about thinking about how maybe from, a per, from the perspective, and again, this is my own perspective of the people that I see in the clinic. So I don't pretend to talk on behalf of people on the autism spectrum, but only from my perspective. But I feel that many of them sort of feel that everything's changing around them and it's challenging because sometimes maybe when they, they have their favorite shows as kids, uh, and why isn't it okay for them to continue loving those TV shows, for example, but then people grow and they have different interests and then they are still kind of uh, seeing that, that change around them, but pretty comfortable without changing themselves. Uh, and that highlights some of that tension. When he meets a child that comes to his clinic, his favorite question to ask is, what is your thing? What makes your eyes light up and what keeps you going? He patiently waits for answers and learns about their interests, from sharks and SpongeBob to poetry, trains, and even outer space. The expectation is that humans would have, I mean, this is kind of, on the creative side, but that humans would have the space to see the entire uh, rainbow of colors and maybe someone on the autism spectrum just wants to see the color red. So it's not like, this is my specific interest and I just want to focus on this. I don't need to see all of the other colors or the rainbow, I just want this. Or this is how long it takes me to think about stuff and I just need you to give me the time for the Wilson's folks to turn in, in my brain, like don't rush me and I need to process things in my own way. The richness of the stories he's heard from autistic folks can often be overlooked by an intense focus on diagnostic criteria. He says that even genetics can tell us so much about someone's underlying biology, 
but so little about the radiance of their inner world. So he uses music to convey just a sliver of their universe and all their wild wonder. Some of them just love the rain and they need to be outside when they're in the rain. And then some of them are all about outer space and that's kind of how it ties into the name of the song and the, the name of the article, which is like, they know the names of all of the constellations and the distance between stars. And that's awesome. And the, mold, the typical mold doesn't have space to accommodate for all of that knowledge in only one, one single area. And the same is true for trains and stations. Like we have so many patients who just love trains. So they know everything about trains or they know every specific station in London and like how long it takes you to get from one to the other one and what changes you have to do where and they just know it all. By now, you're probably wondering, what's Dr. Moreno de Luca's thing? What's his story? And how did he get to where he is today? Well, to find out, you'll need to wait for a second part of this podcast episode. So stay tuned since this is a story that will leave you inspired and ready to rock on with your aspirations and interests. As always, thank you so much for listening to Autism Thinks. I'm your host, Hannah, signing out. <laughs>